Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, I'm back in the studio with Dr. Monica Gandhi. Something happened. Something deeply unfortunate happened. Monica Gandhi has a lousy surge protector. I blame it on the surge protector because the plug came unplugged and we lost we lost two bits of conversation. We have four parts to this Plenary Session podcast and two have been erased forever. So you get two parts. So it is a bit of discontinuous conversation, but I think it's still worth it. It's still quite satisfying. Hope you enjoy. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, we're back. Monica Gandhi just unplugged me. (laughs) (laughs) So we can say lots of things. Uh Uh-huh. So now she's back on the record. Um, So you were saying, um, you were taking us through. So you you knew when you were a Harvard Medical student, you wanted to do HIV. Um, You came here, obviously, yeah, the epicenter um, of HIV, certainly in the 80s and into the 90s. And then, um, and you were drawn to underserved populations. Yes, because I wanted to serve people who are poor, uninsured, um, and there's a lot of substance use, mental illness in our population at San Francisco General in our HIV clinic, and I was very interested in this population. It's an underserved, vulnerable population that just because these HIV medications are here, there are other things in life besides uh, the ability to take those HIV medications. So I'm very interested in this. I see. And, and, and that has a commonality to your, your discussions and your talk in COVID, which is that, um, you know, you're somebody who's obviously an ID doctor, exquisitely concerned about COVID, but you always think about a disease in the broader context of all the challenges people are facing in their lives and all the sort of threats to their health. Yes, that's exactly right. Like um, I am, like you said, very concerned about COVID and its impact and its severity of disease. However, holistically, the two things that HIV taught me is that other aspects of life, like poverty, like loneliness, like mental illness, like substance use, everything else that's going on has to be putting into our equation when we talk about COVID. And the second is that it can never be about one thing because HIV was never about one thing. So we can never just talk about COVID without talking about the totality of someone's life when we message. Before SARS-CoV-2, before COVID-19, were you active on social media? No, I was not at all active. I've never been on Facebook or Twitter or anything um, before uh, SARS-CoV-2. Someone told me I was supposed to get on it uh, (laughs) during SARS-CoV-2, so I did in April 2020. So you pretty much joined at the worst moment in time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. For discourse. People yell. People can yell at you. Yes. So I wonder, what was it that compelled you to say... um, you know, I want to go out here and, and, and give my perspective. 
Because what happened was two things. One is that I wanted to make sure that I got all the up-to-date medical information and people were saying things were uh, tweeted on Twitter before they even came out in preprint. And the second uh, was that the dialogue seemed really one way from infectious disease doctors, not including this HIV perspective often or not including holistic aspects of other people's of people's lives and economics and loneliness and I wanted to talk about that as well and and discuss it so that I wouldn't look like I was just talking about one thing which was only the virus of SARS-CoV-2. And when was this that you joined? I joined April 2020. Wow. <laughs> a I month see. after a the, month after the yeah, the first the first first blow, the yes. first shutdown. I see. And um I don't know. I mean, I think uh, listeners, I mean, I should tell listeners for the few listeners who may not follow you on Twitter, um, you know, you're known for offering a very um, nuanced, deep, rich, um, and thoughtful portrayal of uh, both the disease we're facing and the responses to it. And um, you're somebody who I think is really brings a different tone to the conversation. Um, maybe we'll talk about that for a second. So I think one of the things that that's different is there are many people who talk a lot about the virus, and the narrative is doom, gloom, fear, even when there's good news. Vaccine comes, but when are we going to get it to people? Okay. But then we get it to people, and then, but variants are coming. And you should not relax any restriction. Of course, not in public, but also not in private. You should not do anything. And, and, and every day there's a new doom story. You don't bring that same perspective. You bring a perspective that's balanced. I mean, I think some will label you as an optimist, but you're, I think you're neither an optimist nor a pessimist. You're just really balanced. It's just that in comparison to doom and gloom, you look like a raging optimist. So I wonder if you might talk about, about that. Uh, are, I mean, this is just who you are. You're not trying to do anything, I, I would imagine. But what, where, where, why, why do you find yourself in this spot? Because um, I can't believe that the pandemic was declared by the WHO on March 11th and that November 9th we all woke up in the morning and we had the first vaccine news um, on a press release from Pfizer. And I can't believe we're not like literally jumping up and down all day long mm -hmm. um, because uh, these will get us out of the pandemic. They always have before. It's about severity of disease and not uh, what's in your nose. It always has been about severity of disease. Otherwise, we never would have had people wear masks or shut down society or care about this virus. We wouldn't be testing everyone like crazy. None of this would ever happen. It's all about severity of disease. And all the vaccines incredibly protect against severity of disease. And so all we should be thinking about is how amazing it is that we got the technology and these vaccines. We have like seven that we haven't approved, by the way, but um, and we should get those out quickly. And there's nothing else to talk about because we need to get through this pandemic. Mm -hmm. We can't we can't afford to have schools closed. We can't afford to have uh, people lose their life savings because then they'll die of hunger and other things. It is it is imperative to just talk about how great everything is at the moment. And I don't understand. I truly, genuinely, in a wide-eyed, I'm not being cynical, I don't understand why we're still doom and glooming messaging. And I don't understand why after we're vaccinated, we can't get back to human closeness because loneliness is profoundly wrong. Mm -hmm. It is against our very primate nature. So I truly, I'm not even tweeting like cynically. I'm just literally saying I don't understand. 
So let's talk about the greatness of where we are right now in this pandemic. That's a very, I mean, astute point you make. I mean, I think a lot of people may not be ready to hear it, but it's a real point, which is that if you had SARS-CoV-2, same virus, and if it did not result in a fraction of people being hospitalized, if it didn't result in a fraction of people suffering respiratory distress, if it didn't result in, you know, half of 1%, less than 1% of people, I don't want to say exactly the number because it's going to get me in trouble, but some tiny fraction of people dying, if it didn't have that, would it be fair to say it would just be another cold? Well, exactly. So what happened in the end of 2019 is that there was a whistleblower event in China, and then the WHO was alerted that there was this virus that was causing terrible acute respiratory distress syndrome. And uh, then it ended up resembling a virus that causes colds, which are coronaviruses. But that alert never would have gone out. It never even would have been brought to our attention if it didn't cause severe disease at higher frequency of other coronaviruses or rhinoviruses. Mm -hmm. And so it is that very thing that we have to take away from this virus by generating T-cell immune responses in all of our bodies so that no matter what's happening in our noses or um, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter what's hap- what we need to take away from it, it's its ability to get into our lungs and cause severe disease. And I think that's, I mean, so important because, um, because if you start to conceptualize it that way, which is if it were not for the severe lung disease, you wouldn't even have a label on it. It would just be one of the many things on that, eight-plex panel that we send on people who complain of URI. Right. Um, the reason that's important is it appears from 70,000 persons pooled in vaccine studies that there is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you say that in your, in your Grand Rounds you pointed out, one hospitalization, zero deaths from, from COVID-19, and 70,000 people vaccinated with a number of different vaccine products. That's correct. So now there are seven phase three clinical trial results that are out there. I just added... Um, the Sinopharm one this morning to this table I'm making, and there was one person hospitalized who didn't die who got the vaccine, and otherwise zero people hospitalized, zero in all the vaccine trials who got vaccinated, uh, compared to many that got hospitalized who received placebo. It is astounding. It is incredible. This is all we should be focusing on, and it, it, it leads to so much optimism. I'm still happy even though schools aren't open and all these other things because it makes me so sad that we can't take that optimism and run with it. And this is against variants, by the way. So keep in mind the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was studied when 95% of the variants circulating in South Africa were the B1351, mm-hmm. the one with the E484K mutation, mm-hmm. the one that we keep on talking about. That vaccine, that very virus was studied and still severe disease was curtailed massively. And that's important, which is that, um, you know, the doom and gloom messaging is that it was, I forget the precise number, but 60 or 70% effective against symptomatic COVID. But the, the right way to look at it is it still appears to be uh, exquisitely effective against the thing you're worried about, bad COVID. Correct, exactly right. So mild COVID, as you know, can range from a stuffy nose to zero symptoms at all. There is an estimate from the CDC, which I agree with, that 40% are completely asymptomatic, Mm -hmm. only just had it in their nose. Um, Never would have known about it if we hadn't happened to PCR their nose swab. So if you feel completely well, um, those are also not the people who come to medical attention for having longer-term symptoms. So yes, I think it will defang, as I say, the virus completely. 
And that's what measles vaccine did, that's what mumps, that's what rubella, that's what pertussis, that's what they all did. We just never swabbed people's noses because we didn't have the technology oh, to see. do PCR in you know 19, in the 1800s for measles. So we never did it. People could have been holding it in their nose the entire time. But the output of all the trials for all the vaccines are what has happened to severe disease. And we got it with these COVID vaccines. Spike protein works. Now there's some people who are concerned that you could remove the severe disease, still acquire even an asymptomatic or a mild COVID infection, like a runny nose, and then without having the severe disease, develop long COVID complications, cardiac damage, lung damage, uh, other long COVID complications. Is this, um, I guess, um, I don't know, what are your thoughts on this? Is it plausible, possible? I mean, I guess it's within the realm of possibility. Is it plausible? Is it likely? It's not plausible um, that in le- what really causes severe, what causes longer symptoms right. after an infection is having a massive innate inflammatory response. Not the adaptive one, but the innate, um, non-specific inflammatory response. And so it's people who have been brought to medical attention because they got sick, then they knew they got COVID, they had a um, diagnostic test for COVID, and then they can feel unwell for a while after, usually because they had symptomatic COVID. We don't have great data on this. Um, We'll get more data out of UCSF. They're gonna publish a paper that it's severe and moderate disease that leads to longer symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you've had asymptomatic infection, it doesn't trigger the inflammatory pathways to lead you to not have to have longer longer term symptoms so it doesn't biologically make sense that you could have asymptomatic covid and then feel unwell eight months from now that's of course my bias um yeah i think it doesn't make a lot of sense but it is something that people say which makes me wonder that they've run out of doom and gloom things to say so they have to resort to this new doom and gloom yes this is my concern is that i sort of think about it this way there are um a lot of people who uh, in high school, like no one really talked to them because they were in the lab, and um, they were really geeky and stuff. Uh-huh. And that's fine, that's great. And then now they're talked to all the time on TV, and they get to give interviews, and they, and this is kind of interesting. You get to be like a lab person, but you get to talk on TV, and you you don't even go and see patients because um, you're just in the lab. And <laughs> and 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 I'm con- being I'm getting concerned that the doom and gloom messaging is. A hook unlike they like yeah. to, people like to be on TV there's no point to do this doom and gloom now we should be there's zero point we have great vaccines all we should be focusing on I was keep on thinking anyone who wants to give a doom and gloom interview about the variants should actually put their mask on go down to a mass vaccination site and um, and volunteer to log in people uh, because what we should be doing is vaccinating people as much mm-hmm. as we can I think that, I mean, you broach a topic that I've spent, you know, I spent some time thinking about, but I don't think I fully have wrapped my head around what's going on. I mean, I agree with your observation, which is that there are um, a bunch of people, um, they, I think, have two main forums. One is the nighttime cable TV forum. The other forum is um, Twitter, which is a reinforcing forum because you're constantly getting uh, a response for what you're putting out there, um, which is likes and retweets and that kind of thing. And um, if people are afraid, which I think many people are, um, and there's a huge contingency of afraid people who are on the website, and you keep putting out fearful doom messages, you're going to continue to hit that feedback loop. And then I think it's very difficult to shift and pivot 
to a realistic appraisal of that it's not how it was last year. We have a vaccine, seven vaccines. Seven. And yeah. they're all amazing. All amazing. All I'm amazing. Ne- I'm so shocked. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so excited. It's this technical... I don't know. I mean, we were poised to do it. In, you know, if you have a pandemic in the 21st century, I think you can make vaccines fast instead of after the fact in the 1918 influenza pandemic. Um, but yes, um, what I learned actually from an interview that someone I did with uh, is I watched an addiction specialist and explain the, the process of fear and how addictive it is. Mm. Because it really makes sense because if you want to run away from the saber-toothed tiger, um, it is very adaptive to be fearful. I see. Uh, and so we do get addicted to fear and to doom, um, but we need to unhook ourselves from that fear and doom and concentrate on getting these vaccines out quickly because by definition, all of this fear will melt away when we see people like we're seeing in Israel, when we're what we're seeing in um, to the UK to a certain extent, when we see people stop going into the hospital for COVID-19, the fear will by definition go away because that's what scares us is getting ill. That's the only thing that scares us. If four people have been vaccinated and they want to have lunch together, what would you tell them? I would say please have lunch together. So wait for 10 to 14 days after your second vaccination. Then you're not only 90, with ones we have here, you're 95% protected against illness, even mild illness. So that's the important thing. The couple of people who got ill um, from COVID had very mild illness mm. in the, in the um, vaccine arm, but probably before they were 100% protected, which two doses did for you. And so um, you're not going to be spreading it. You're uh, lonely. It's been a long time, and you should have lunch together. And I think that is really important, too, because I bet once we start seeing each other more, I bet anything that some of our fear yeah, we'll will, will melt away because it's, it is partially the social isolation and how unnatural this is that has led to an addiction to doom and gloom. Well, that's well put. Um, schools, let's talk about schools for a minute. Um, you've been somebody who has been willing to say it. Schools um, need to be open. The kids need to be there. The risk of the kids are low. We learned early on the steep age gradient, like... Um, unprecedentedly steep age gradient um, and kids remarkably are doing well from the virus but they're not doing well at home there's a lot of anxiety a lot of depression um, I've seen some different conflicting reports and somebody says you know well there's no increase in teen suicides and I say well you know that's a late marker of the fact that's kids are as suffering. bad as it can get yeah that's yeah. as bad as it can get so like you know you don't have to wait for an excess of kids killing themselves which by the way they'd have to be killing themselves in environments where everyone is trapped in the same near a, a tiny area which might be uh they might be suffering as much as someone who kills themselves but not actually able to kill themselves because they're around a lot of people in, mm-hmm. in a close quarters but um my point is that that's not the end mark that's not the end point like you don't want to wait for severe yeah, covid right. disease yeah yeah um just like you don't want to wait for severe covid you don't want to wait for a suicide to know that people are anguishing they're suffering kids are suffering they're not learning i mean there's a number of studies that show educational outcomes are poor um education is one of the few this this country, how many upward ladders do we have for opportunity anymore? We've ripped them all down. Uh, we have like one ladder, and that ladder is K through 12 education. Uh, that's the only ladder, um, and and we've taken it away for a year. Um, what are your thoughts on schools? And then maybe some specifics. Um, you know, should there be distancing between individual kids, or can we distance a cohort? If a kid tests positive, do you quarantine the class for how long? Um, what are your thoughts on these questions? 
Yeah, I mean, the one thing I will say about myself is that schools I have never said should be closed, even from March wow. on. And that will, I will always look back and say, I, I know I said the right thing. Yeah. Um, it's just no one was talking to me back then. Like, we weren't talking, so I would just say it to myself. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is that actually quite quickly, but, but okay, so the, the initial reason was right, that children don't get ill fr- um, so ill from COVID, thank God. Mm-hmm. And then the second reason was that very quickly it was probably like end of March so really quickly we knew how the virus was transmitted wow like we got that information so fast so not through surfaces not uh, not through hands so really three things um, that it is uh, is through the respiratory tract and we knew the three things that helped uh, mass distancing ventilation to a certain degree and you didn't have to have all of them perfect either. Like you didn't have to have ventilation perfect if you were more distance. You didn't have to have distance perfect if you could open the window. I and see. you didn't have to have um, masks be double masking um, <laughs> if you uh-huh. if you um, had more distancing. Right, so I see. it was putting those three together. I have a paper coming out um, just next week about a company that did this. They never closed. They never, never closed. They just did all these three things. Right. And no one got sick. No right. one got sick. Right. Um, and, and these are all adults of course but why because all these three things work so um know the distancing does not have to be uh six feet that there's no uh, science behind that the who says one meter and that is actually 3.28 feet um and then someone apparently miscalculated and called it six uh here i literally heard that that is that that's the origin of the six origins that we had a metric uh, issue like we always have typical Um, (laughs) (laughs) and so um so everywhere around the world they're signed stay one meter apart Uh um which is which is 3.2 something and then um so it doesn't have to be six uh, children can be closer together. And then I do agree with um, the ch- the um, teacher being further apart, but usually teachers are more separated right. from the children. So they can have that six-foot distancing. They can open a window for the ventilation. And if they can't open a window, even though beyond a super ventilation system, opening windows is pretty low tech. Right. Um, they can also wear a more protective mask, um, a, a, fit, a fitted and more filtrated mask. Mm. All of that could be done, um, and we could have kept schools open because all of these other effects are devastating. So it's going back to that issue, right? Like, what, when you just take one virus in, in isolation, that's like um, isolating a virus in a laboratory, mm-hmm. but we're not a laboratory, we're a world and we're human beings and children needed to go to school, and we acted like, like we just had the virus in isolation mm. and we're like in a sealed laboratory without all these other aspects of life. And if we had just opened also when the incidence was lower, like things would have just, we would have shown each other that it would have all been fine mm. because places that did are right. kept open and right. they're all doing great. So the West Coast has been more notable clearly in keeping their schools closed. It'll be a big failure of the West Coast. Um, so I keep on thinking, three mitigation procedures, don't shut down society anymore. No more shutdowns, no more shutdowns. So open the uh, museums and open the schools and everything right now with these three mitigation procedures. And they're not even, they don't have to be top notch. They don't need to have the ventilation system all installed. I see. Opening a window is ventilation. And being a little bit better yeah. in one gives you some flexibility in the other. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have a great ventilation system or you literally can't open the window, which I still think over the summer we should have um, figured out how to open those windows that we can't open. Right. Um, then so then wear a more fit and filtrated mask. So right. they're all pushing and pulling on each other. The triangle mask distancing ventilation, they all pull on each other. Mask can be better if distancing is three feet. 
or two feet. Um, and then distancing better, you can wear a less fitted mask. It's, it's simple, they all three pull on each other. We have a paper coming out tomorrow on this. I look forward to it. And um, I mean, it sounds to me like if I were to just sort of reflect on your philosophy, I mean, you're a pragmatist. Yes, um, yes, yeah. that's a good way to put it, yeah. yes, yes. And you're a pragmatist because you practiced for many years um, taking care of infectious disease People who no people who happen to have an infectious disease, but also have all of the things that happen in yes. life. Yes, they've and been living with it. Yes. They've been living with it, and they live with other things like they can't make their rent, or they have drug addiction, or they have some other trauma in their life. And when you when you work under these conditions, these aren't laboratory conditions. You're not pipetting all day with perfect measurements. When you work in the real world with real people, you become a pragmatist. That's exactly what it is. It's because the other great viral pandemic of our day is still raging, it's still happening, and people who sit with HIV patients every day, the entire there's an infectious disease and then there's everything else and you balance all of it. Mm. I wonder if, um, I wonder how you feel about this, um, that some of the people reading these data are, are, are people who don't also spend time in the clinic. And one of the things the clinic will always give you is at the end of the day, no matter how complex or convoluted the data is, you're going to have to tell people answers to binary questions like, doctor, can I do X, Y, or Z? Um, And you have to draw upon all these different types of evidence. Um, You have to understand and uh, be, I think, sympathetic and empathetic to the patient's desires and needs. And and then you got to give advice. (laughs) And the advice can't be, uh, well, I don't know with 100% certainty. Uh, for everything, because then the patient's going to be angry with you because that's not really great. You yeah, are, yeah, right. That's a very good point. I have been thinking a lot about this, That, um, uh, and I hope I don't get anyone mad at me, but the PhD uh, epidemiologists who have informed this pandemic uh, have a completely different um, uh, message, and it seems like they have a completely different way of thinking about things than an MD who sits in front of patients. And so I think you're exactly right that the reason that um, you don't actually need to be infectious disease trained, I think it is the doctors during this pandemic who have had more nuanced messages because not only do they have to tell a patient, uh, they, they, I've never in, a, in my life told a patient the p-value in a paper <laughs> that it can't be 100% certain. I say, uh-huh. you know what, I actually think this, this uh, blood pressure medication is really going to work. Right. Um, and so you're right. Uh, and um, so I think that the MDs that are informing this public um, questions right now seem to have a different way of not only synthesizing information but communicating it to the public that allows for the complexities of a human being as opposed to just a huge faceless uh, population. Yeah. And, and, and we also have been um, leaving our houses um, yeah, <laughs> and going right. and seeing people and going and seeing people in the clinic. And maybe if you're home all the time, you get too abstract. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. I, um, you know, as you know, um, just I, I switched jobs right in the beginning of the pandemic, yes. and um, my clinic wasn't able to start until I got my California medical license, um, and um, I, uh, I, I uh, and that's just because of the delay goes with licensing. Um, and, but I pushed on them really hard to get it to start, <laughs> yes. and and I felt psychologically a big difference when I got back yeah. in the clinic. Yeah, big difference. Yeah, a you're huge. sitting in front of someone you have to explain, and what do you have to explain? You have to explain COVID because that's what's yeah. going on right now. And so yesterday I had to talk to someone about why I want them to take the vaccine. And I 
I took the all of their hesitancies and I took all of the historical aspects of being African American in this society and we put together the data and I went over it and and they wanted to take the vaccine. Um, but it was a it was a conversation um, that took a while and it was human. That is, um, yeah, really, uh, really, really good to hear. Um, and I get, and I'm, I'm guessing you didn't lead with the after vaccination, nothing changes. No. <laughs> That's no. your opening gambit. In fact, I said, actually, when you're vaccinated, you know, I just can't wait to hug you, Mr. Uh, mm. Because I used to hug my patients yeah. like many of uh, people do in the HIV world. I don't know about oncology. No, but we oh, are, oncology is yeah, like, it's very, a common thing. Yeah. No, it's common. I mean, and because I, people come to love. I mean, think yes. of you as almost a part of the yes. family. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so... Yeah. Um, and so it's very human to be a doctor, and it's very touchy, and it's very laying hands on and uh, examining people, and um, and uh, I can't, you know, I think we all can't wait to be doctors and patients together again. I wonder if you might get into the issue of schools. Um, hot button issue, obviously. Um, you were, um, I think, all along um, on the side of doing, you know, I think you touched about this in the first part of the podcast, which which. I, trying to remember um you know you were always somebody talking about mitigating risk but it, it became very clear early on in the spring of last year um that the risk to children themselves is dare i say on par with seasonal influenza yes you yes know, dare i say it um, yes, yes. it is and um and and with that knowledge knowing that you know for many years we do take that risk seasonal influenza risk when we send kids to school every winter but we do that because we believe and we know that kids need school for social development, for educational development, for upward mobility, for all these good things. Um, I wonder if you might talk about, you know, how do you view the schools right now? CDC has guidance saying, you know, guidance that basically will put every 90% of this country in the red zone, which is hybrid at best for young kids and, you know, almost nothing in person for older kids unless they're like actively tested. Um, what are your thoughts on six feet of distance? How do you think about these tricky issues? Yeah, I think there's three things that concern me about the CDC guidelines, um, and I mean concerning that they can bring the whole thing to a halt. Um, so one is uh, this question, like you just said, there, there sh- it should be immaterial what community incidents or transmission or prevalences, all three of those, mm. because of um, their own data uh, from Wisconsin and North Carolina that they published in their own uh, journal, the MMWR, uh, that you know, even in areas where there was high incidence that you can keep people safe. It's actually the same reason. Did you know that UCSF just published, they didn't publish it, but they gave a talk that occupationally at UCSF, the people who are out at home working, as opposed to us who are sitting here, they have more COVID than we do. Is that true? Yeah, I it's true. And I'll, I, I tweeted it, but I'll send you yeah, uh, I'll, I'll send you a link that, that because why? Because all we do as we're sitting here, um, if we're not vaccinated, is mitigate risk. All yes. we do is mass distancing ventilation. Um, the three triangles and we don't like like what ventilation like the windows cracked open and that's ventilation so um, so because of that we've had very little once we instituted those three components we have very little uh, COVID-19 transmission in our workplace and there's more out of our employees who are sitting at home so the same thing with schools that has just been shown again and again Germany there was this amazing article yesterday they opened really high incidence um and they believe i think in cracking <laughs> windows apparently mm-hmm. the windows were just a little bit open mm-hmm. fresh air is a good thing and um so they didn't even actually wear masks the children until in november um no no transmission to the uh, um to teachers from students at all um it was the opposite if anything happened so um so right so that's one concern that they shouldn't have put community transmission in the level as in their guidelines when their own data 
said otherwise. Second is distancing. No magic about distancing, as we talked about, right? The meter, uh, the rest of the world is a meter, or at least anyone who's going by WHO guidelines, which is 3.28 feet, I think. Uh-huh. Um, so no six feet business. Um, and certainly the CDC just put guidelines out that if you want to, um, if you have less distance or there's something that's more concerning, then you fit and filter your mask more. So you tighten your mask and you can have a better mask fit. So I would advise that teachers who are inside who are not yet vaccinated, if there's not six feet, to have a better mask. Um, and then uh, the third um, thing that concerned me was that it was kind of vague on testing and screening. Um, there's been no setting that's shown that that changes anything to test and screen. and so. Um, I think they should have just left it kind of up to the district how you want to test and screen because, um, you know, as you know, the quarantines, universal precautions by definition means you think everyone has COVID. Mm -hmm. Why would I mask Mm -hmm. around someone who's tested every day? Then I'd be on Saturday Night Live and we would act and we, um, because those guys are hugging and acting all over the place because they test all the time. Right. So if you don't test, what you do is you presume that everyone has COVID, you mask, distance, ventilate, and um, that's how you, you don't need to test. And that's why we've never tested routinely in healthcare settings. We just come to work. So those are my three concerns about the CDC guidelines. And I think those are those are really terrific. And I've, I've traced a couple of them. I, you know, I tried to get to the bottom of their relationship between community levels and what schools should be doing. And I, it took me to sort of a Lancet infectious disease paper that ran a number of analyses. This was done in the UK, I think, between July and August of last year. And the analyses were basically uh, the x-axis was, you know, cases by day, not by seven days. So they've actually kind of changed a little bit per 100,000. And the y-axis were the number of cases that they could contact trace like to school spread and the number of outbreaks, which were defined as, you know, more than two cases. And there was no statistical relationship, as you point out, between cases and the community spread that it really had to do with what they were doing in schools. And there was a statistical relationship between outbreaks, quote-unquote outbreaks, and, and the population levels. Um, but the the arse, but the, if you look at this regression, it's just terrible. It's like three data points driving the whole thing. It's a sparse, wow. it's a sparse thing, and the absolute risks were two tenths of one percent for outbreaks in all these schools. That's by school and by people. I think it's like four one hundredths of one percent um, in terms of actual number of people, kids who, or you know teachers who got infected. Um, this is really threadbare data, and and that is what their report links to and cites. Wow. Yeah, so I chased wow. it down a little wow. bit. Um, that was good to do. That's concern. Yeah, so. So it's. We're not the holistic <laughs> aspect. Like we talked about last time, we don't want people to actually kill themselves, right? Like we want to get head off those things in the past and things are not going well for children. Yeah, I wonder if you might talk about that. I mean, I've heard from a number of my colleagues, um, mostly um, colleagues who have sort of teenage kids. Um, that it's a tough time for teenage kids. I've also been reading the many reports about anxiety, depression. Um, I think, um, you know, that, the, the, I mean, you've said that a couple times. I guess this is something that I think will be different to some people because some people say that, you know, how does one weigh a life against anxiety? Anxiety you can get over. A life is a life, is a life. you know, once it's gone, it's gone. Um, and I think you're somebody who, I don't know, I wonder how you put it. I mean, you're sensitive. I mean, obviously, you're a doctor, and you don't want anyone to pass away of COVID if, they, if, they, if it can be Definitely avoided. Definitely not, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're also somebody who understands that mental anguish is, um, is terrible. And it is, uh, I, I mean, there, there are people who suffer deeply um, while alive. And 
um, the fact that they happen to be, their heart happens to be beating does not mean they're suffering any less. So how do you weigh these things? You know, I think it is like what we talked about last time, because I'm an HIV doctor, it like through and through, it isn't just about the risk of one thing, which is the HIV in their body, um, because uh, we haven't cured HIV, so that's still in the body. It is HIV in the body, and then all the other elements of that human. So then if you actually extend that to society, then you think, okay, so there is a terrible pathogen out there. Luckily, we have these amazing vaccines. We're going to get through it. But there's this terrible pathogen out there that has led to many deaths and lives uh, being taken. So how do we take that pathogen, considering all of um, population as one human body in a way, and saying, okay, how do we minimize the damage from COVID and also take care of society? And so now this far into the pandemic, we can realize one thing that we did not take care of at all was children in our society, uh, or at least children in the places where schools weren't open, um, because I think there's there's clearly um, some schools that are open in the United States. So then you think of the whole organism, you think, okay, I have to mitigate risk, do whatever I can to ensure that teachers are safe whatever I can. Oh, wait, it's a respiratory virus. I know how to keep them safe. I know it. I know it from not just data, but I knew it in March from the fact that it only goes from the nose and mouth and it's mm -hmm. not fomites and it's not transmission and it's not radioactive and it's not a mystery. We knew mm -hmm. it in March. Mm -hmm. And so um, actually it was February that the New England Journal papers were coming out about um, masking and asymptomatic transmission. So we know how to keep people safe. So then we know how to assume everyone has COVID because we're making all that assumption and we know what techniques to apply to mitigate risk. And the there, one technique is to keep everyone at home. That is the worst technique of all because that technique has just completely failed to consider the entire society right. as one organism. And then you ensure that you mitigate everyone's risk and still take care of other elements of society. I'm not understanding that this late into it that we're still saying that we don't know how to change risk, because we do. We're not even remotely in March 2020. Um, the <clears throat> companies have announced, um, and some even ahead of schedule, that we're going to get a lot more vaccines. Um, we might even be in a situation by, by June um, that any adult who wants one can get one, be vaccinated. Um, and of course, I'm sure you're the biggest proponent that they ought to do that. My question is, where do you see the next the next stage um we're getting the seasonality effect the cases are plummeting we're going to get more and more vaccinations the summer i'm hoping the summer is going to be great um everyone who wants one will be able to get one by then um what, do, what and 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 then the questions i have for you are as some people are saying that the kids will need one vaccine as well your thoughts on that um what will the fall look like will there be potentially some small outbreaks will um um, what will next year's fall look like? I mean, is this a virus that's going to be with us? Um, what are your thoughts on these questions? Yeah, you know, I think the virus could still be with us, but it totally doesn't matter. Um, because uh, if the virus is still with us, just like rhinovirus is still with us, as long as it just causes a cold, then no one cares. And in fact, we shouldn't even be screening for it. So that's what vaccines will do, is it will render the virus um, without the ability to hurt people. Um, it, will, it will render it that they don't hosp get hospitalized, they don't get sick. So, um, and you don't actually need every single person to take the vaccine to do that. So by definition, this is what I think will happen. When no one, when very few people are in the hospital because of this specific illness, not maybe no one, 
but a few. So let's take big cities in Delhi. What happened is that, or big cities in India, sorry, when no one is needing a ventilator, when no one's in the hospital, literally society flies open. It's just by definition. And so if people aren't getting sick from COVID to any alarming degree, if it's one more thing that you manage in the hospital for a few people, just like you did influenza, um, then there will be no way to um, keep society from not being open. I know that many people still try to talk about that. We shouldn't have movies and theaters and all the other things, but it, w- it, will, it will not be possible because all the other aspects of life will flood back in when this isn't scary. And so it, it, we don't even have to argue about when to lift restrictions. It will happen. Really? I, I, that's, you just think people yes, will vote yes, their feet. Yes, 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 they will because you, it is only, people are only frightened right now and masking, distancing, staying home because there is a disease out there that can make them ill. And if enough people get vaccinated, then their T-cell responses are prime. So even if they see it in their nose, the T-cells will come out and they will prevent you from getting severely ill. And the hospitalizations will melt away as they have in Israel as they're starting almost, not even starting, they're really happening in the UK. Um, I think it was 238 deaths uh, four days ago. Um, and, and as that happens, people will stop feeling fear. It's a natural response to feel fear when you can be hurt, and it's a natural response to not feel, hurt when, uh, feel fear when you can't be hurt. And it will happen. That's, uh, and yes, yeah. I think that we're going to have a good summer. If all these vaccines, if we get 70, if we get enough people, take, uh, we have enough vaccine supply and everyone who wants to get it gets it, we're going to have a very good summer. And children vaccination, your thoughts? Not necessary um, because they are not the ones who get ill. Very thankfully, bizarre aspect of this virus. Um, and so not necessary for them to be back in school. Teachers won't be able to pass it to them with their uh, fully vaccinated status. Uh, teachers won't um, get it from them because they're fully vaccinated. And so teachers will be perfectly safe once they're vaccinated. So there's no issue for teachers to be feel safe if children aren't vaccinated and children, uh, when the trials are done, they can get vaccinated if their parents choose to. It's going to be a risk-benefit analysis depending on the side effects of the vaccines. That's well put. Um, in the winter of, let's say, 2023, um, you know, maybe lots of people have been vaccinated. Your thoughts on um, will we need a seasonal booster? Um, your thoughts on will there be, you know, will you hear about a nursing home in North Dakota that had an outbreak of COVID, um, you know, winters from a few years from now? I actually don't think so, uh, so. So I think it'll be still circulating, and it'll probably be put in a respiratory viral antigen panel, like when people I come see. in and they get sick. Right. And so when people come in the hospital, people may not know this, but we actually screen them for something as minor as rhinovirus by um, you know swabbing their nose and doing a whole panel. Not because we can actually have treatments for rhinovirus, but because we just want to know um, why they got sick. And it's possible that um, SARS-CoV-2 will be added to that mix. Um, and because they have the T cells that are so long lasting, at least, and I always point to this Jennifer Dan UCSD paper in science, that the T cell half-lives after natural infection, which will simulate vaccination, look like they have a half-life of the yellow fever vaccination, which is a life once in a lifetime vaccine, unless you're in a high prevalence area and then you'll need a booster. Um, and so it doesn't look like it's like gonna wane that fast with T cell immunity. So, and then couple on top of it that SARS-CoV-2, the very polymerase that it uses, does not have a high mutational rate. It actually has a better proofreading mechanism 
way better than influenza, mm. way better than the reverse transcriptase of HIV. So it's it it looks like it's mutating. It's not. I mean, it's mutating, but it's what it does. And there's a lot of cases right now. Once we tamp down transmission, it won't have this chance to go forth and mutate like this. And so I think it'll be one other respiratory virus that we screen for. Uh, we do have treatments because we spent all this time treating um, someone who who comes in with severe disease. They will get remdesivir and steroids in this setting. In other places, they'll get steroids. But it won't be very much because hopefully we will we'll have reached enough of the population being immunized. Even people who don't want to take the vaccine now, they'll feel good about the vaccine in a year because they'll say, hey, everyone like took it and they, they didn't have serious side effects. Okay, I'm feeling better about it. I'm going to take my vaccine next year. And we'll eventually get more and more people taking the vaccine. It can always be updated if it needs to be for some variant, but I, I do believe from what, I wouldn't have said this um, even six weeks ago, but what I'm seeing in Israel uh, right. and, <laughs> and the UK, yeah. it's yeah. real world data, it's amazing, plummeting. There's like four people in the hospital in all of Israel who's had the vaccine. Mm. That's well put. Um, one question that I had about was, the, um, you know, the transmissibility, I was spending some time digging into this data um, of the variants, and you know, obviously people say that, um, you know, they're more transmissible. That sounds frightening. Um, but one thing I was thinking about, like, let's just say there's two strains of COVID, A and B, and they both have a exactly the same rate of infectivity, 10%, 10%. Um, we know that that doesn't mean every single person, you know, has a precisely 10% chance. It's, it's a stochastic event that some people are going to spread it more than other people. It just happens to be um, based on a situation they may find themselves in, uh, etc. Um, it's possible that, you know, if there are two um, strains, A and B, and they're both undergoing this random process that by chance alone, one will come to dominate in, in a short period of time. And then if you look at that exact same data in retrospect and you ask, was A more transmissible than B? Of course, if it came to dominate, it will always look more transmissible in that yeah. retrospective data. Yeah. Um, even if they have the exact same probability of spreading. Um, and so I was thinking that like, you know, how will you actually like scientifically test that question? And I guess the only answer I can think of is um, you have to look at A and B in a different data set entirely, different country, different nation, different period of time, um, or do laboratory evidence to show that it, there's something mechanistic that makes sense, like it binds the receptor tightly or at lower concentration, et cetera. But I worry that at least some of what we're hearing about transmissibility is just this stochastic thing. Um, so anyway, I just wonder I how totally do you... totally agree with that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in fact, if, I th if you think about the UK right now, right. Um, somehow today there was still a news article that said... Uh, B117, so-called UK variant, will um, will dominate. We're going to have another surge with that. But they're vaccinating extremely high rate. They're doing a right. great job because they chose to have the adenovirus DNA um, vaccines along with their mRNA vaccines, which I think mm. is a very key element to vaccinating more quickly. And um, especially if you get like one of each, it seems like that really actually helps increase immunity. And so um, B117 would be, they would be having another surge if yes. there was any question. But you you have the vaccines working. Yes, every strain right now, because not because of that stochastic event, the one that took over is B117. It doesn't matter. They're not having another surge. They're just going so low. So um, anytime you start to get depressed in your mind, keep on pulling yourself back to the real world data. I, I exactly. want to feel doom. I want to feel doom. I want to feel fear. We're never going to get out of this. Wait, the data is right there. It's right in front of your eyes. It's playing out on the world stage. This is amazing. We've never been in a situation where you get to see things playing out on the world stage. Remember how every other disease, the vaccine was developed 
many years after the disease <laughs> right, right. got through society. Right. I, I, I think I was living back, 1948 was the first uh, influenza vaccine. I have to remember if that's uh-huh. exactly right. 30 years after the And I think 1918 the fastest pandemic. was ever three. The fastest vaccine was like in three years or Once something. the thing had calmed down by yeah. itself, by natural immunity, you don't want people to die right. by natural immunity. I mean, there's no other situation in the entire universe where you've gotten the vaccines coming out at the same time that's the cases are still point. going. Right. Yeah. And 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 we are watching instead of a like natural surge with yeah. natural immunity and then yeah. a slower tapering off, we're looking at the incidents go down in a sharp inflection point because uh, right. vaccines are contributing. Even in the United States, where we haven't done a better job um, with our vaccine rollout, it's it's not going down with that natural slow curve. It's it's actually going down more sharp sharply, even with 65 million people vaccinated and counting. Now, what happened with India? India is a, it's an amazing thing, but yeah. what happened? What are your thoughts on this? I mean, I think. Five things. Okay, this is my ideas. I, I don't know, but I don't know really, but five ideas, right? So, um, and many people have said this, but so yeah, so right now, like you said, India, no one's in the hospital from COVID, and so by definition, society flew open, by definition. Um, few people in the hospital, like I think there literally is two in all of Delhi um, the other day. So, okay, so um, younger population, that's been said, right? Less, we definitely, it's not an obese population, so fewer comorbidities. Um, third is that this, I do believe that these circulating other coronaviruses, because we keep we keep ourselves very cold-free here, and we get nervous here, and uh, in India, there's more people, and you get a lot more colds, and so these other four circulating coronaviruses, you get natural T-cell immunity to them, and that has cross-reactivity against SARS-CoV-2. Number four, I actually think the simplest thing in the world of all the interventions that you could do is that people could pull up their dupatta and they could like put something over their face. And so I think when they it didn't block all of transmission, but I actually think it blocked um, them from getting severe illness and they may have had a lower viral inoculum and they had asymptomatic infection, which also led to T-cell immunity. And then the final thing is herd immunity, both from illness and from asymptomatic infection. And all of that led to what happened in India. And I'm glad they're getting vaccinated because it's another booster. They have um, they have their own vaccine, which is a spike protein vaccine. So I know it's going to work, even though the phase three clinical trials have been released. Mm-hmm. And they also have the AstraZeneca. So I'm very glad they're vaccinating. It's another booster because if you had asymptomatic infection, it'd be nice to have a booster. But herd immunity got them through it. Oh, that's that's um, a lot of food for thought. But I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think... It's going to be really interesting to delve deep. I enjoyed your, you know, you th- you tweeted about it. I enjoyed reading that and thinking about it. And uh, I and I think you're you're very likely to be vindicated in a they lot of. They just these. opened schools. Though. Yeah, they just one opened thing school, yeah. as a as a sadness of there is that uh, weddings and all this stuff. I mean, because society flies open, right? So weddings were being having and all these big gatherings and all this, but the schools are just being open now. And the way they're opening is because the government has. Um, the government schools, um, if a teacher doesn't come back, they, they have told, they can't, they, they're sacked. Actually. I see. That's something that uh, yeah. doesn't happen here. <laughs> no, no. India is, India is a whole other system. It's a whole other system. Okay, so here's what I wanted to, I know our time is running out, but I wanted to ask you, um, and I love talking with you because, you know, you're like me. You, you, speak, you speak quickly, uh, <laughs> and I love that because that's how, that's how I'm, I'm wired. Um, Okay, here's my question for you, Monica Gandhi. You're professor of medicine. You've been in this business a long time. Um, you know, you've been in academic medicine. Um, you're a distinguished scholar. Um, everyone I know on infectious disease knows of your work. You know, that goes without saying when people call me up um, 
um, which you know it turns out that people sometimes people ask me like how do you talk where do you talk to all these people like you know people actually call me and we talk on the phone and things like that <laughs> and, but yeah so I have a lot of ID friends um, and um, they call me and they talk and then and they're um, you know always very impressed by your your research work um, your clinician you know you've worked for many years um, I think it would be fair to say that most of your career um, you know. Nobody said anything mean about you. Nobody no, said anything. Yeah. No one ever yelled. Ever. I was the most uncontroversial person. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I want to get at. Yeah. Like your whole, yeah, nobody, like 20 years, yeah. not a single negative peep. word. Not a not single a negative word. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know this to be true, but I would imagine that, you know, you're you're the kind of person who got good grades all throughout. <laughs> yes. You know, you didn't have a bad report. Not since you were like, you know, you're, since you're kindergartner to now, to present day, not a negative peep. Yes. Um, so my question is, and then of course now there are a few. Um, I know you're about to run. Okay, there are a few negative peeps, and the negative peeps come on Twitter, um, negative tweeps or, or whatever they call themselves. Um, <laughs> I guess I want to know, like, how do you? Um, and and I think that phenomenon is also part of the reason why that you know you can't name that doctor who calls it special kind of pessimism, and also why there's so many ID doctors who I talk to who are in the clinic every day, and they're like, what is going on with this messaging? What are we doing? Yeah. And these are left of center, progressive ID doctors, yes. um, critical care doctors, yes. pulmonologists, oncologists. I mean, all these specialties are calling me, and they're like, what the hell? Um, and then, you know, uh, so I guess my question to they you is- They should speak out more though, because then it looks like it's just you and me. So that's what I, okay, <laughs> I agree. Uh, you know, I guess I'm- they feel the exact same way. Yeah, yeah, they feel the exact same way. I guess I'm different than you because I've been, uh, my, been yeah. my entire career, at least the last six years, I've been, every day I get, you know. People I, yell at you. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this got, is the first time in my life yeah. anyone has ever yelled at me. Okay, so that's the, that's the difference. That's right. Yeah, It is a difference. I've gotten a yeah. sack of shit on my yeah. doorstep <laughs> for five years. Okay, so my question is, how is that, how, how do you deal with that? How do you think about that? Um, you're not letting it phase you. You are the... The, 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 I, you're better than anyone I ever know. You never say anything mean-spirited back to anybody on Twitter. I don't know how you do it. It's like a superpower. <laughs> I can't do it. I'm not as good as you. So how do you how do you balance this? How do you think about this? Um, well, okay, so there have been two times in this pandemic that I have actually sunk to the floor on my knees, literally. And one time was seeing what was happening in New York at the beginning, and I wanted to go there, and I felt so sad about... Um, how terrible it was in New York City. We never, ever, this never happened to us there. The second was um, one day I got it from all ends. So I got um, people who don't think that masks are effective yelling at me and calling me lots of names about um, uh, dirty diapers on their face. And then at the same time I got someone writing and I and uh, who had I already muted but um, said something really mean about that I had too much optimism about the vaccines and actually made a personal slur about it. Um, in my behavior with patients. So that was the second day that I actually sank to my knees because I thought I am just being yelled at at both sides and I don't understand because all I'm trying to do is keep a position that is purely based on biology. And so it just didn't seem like, and I actually don't think that like some of these lockdowns are merited. And so so then, you know, I, this, there's a lot of biology stuff. And so, um, so I got actually very feeling terrible. And then I thought to myself, okay, one thing is that I can't look in the mirror in two years if I don't keep on going. If I don't, even if I'm criticized right now and, and people are mad at me, I, I can't look myself in the mirror if I don't use every biological infectious disease argument in the world to ensure that we can make teachers feel safe and try to help... Um, uh, students get back to school, and if I don't, then I'm just I'm not a 
I'm not doing anything right. And so I just take it, but I do, I have to tell you that I'm very uncomfortable right now and I cannot, cannot wait to get off Twitter. And believe me, no one will ever hear from me again in <laughs> no. like five months. You'll never hear from me. No, no. one will ever know because I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> mm. So I'm just going to hold it and the criticism, it's okay. Well, uh, somebody's knocking on your door, so our time is up. We've, we've done this in a couple parts. I guess I just want to say, uh, I just want to thank you um, for the conversation um, and for everything you're doing. And I guess, um, you know, to many of us, you're an inspiration. Um, and I think people who listen, um, I think there probably most people will agree with the majority of what you say. There may be a few people who disagree with some of your views on some things. Natural. This happens to all of us. Um, Monica's right. No, no, you, can, you know, you're like I'm right, but you know, we do. You can disagree. Yeah, that's why I tell people to. Um, but um, I think you're an inspiration to many of us because um, you add a much needed voice to the conversation. Uh, you're brave about it. You're kind about it. You're thoughtful about it. Um, and um, and uh, I literally, literally, twenty five, thirty people have told me how much they enjoy your tweets and they enjoyed your conversation um, when you came on the first time. Thank um, you for having me. I yeah. really appreciate it. No, it thanks, was really Monica. nice to talk to you. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.